Obadiah, um, there we go, um, verses 1 to 21, which can be found on page 772. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come, came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah, shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. 
and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Thank you, Ellie, for reading that so clearly uh, for us. Uh, you'll have gathered this morning that we're taking a break from our regular series in Hebrews. And we wanted people not to miss those, so we've just got a two-week gap. Um, after half-term, we'll come back uh, to that. Uh, so for these two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at this shortest book in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that at all. We're going to do Obadiah. Um, Isaiah is the longest one. We're doing Overdye, which is the shortest one. And two things that will help you and help me, it turns out, uh, is the back of the service sheet, which tells you what we're supposed to be doing uh, this morning. Uh, it's just got an outline there for you. And the other thing is just to have the Bible open in front of you. Uh, our practice here is to preach through the verses of a particular passage. So we'll work our way through bit by bit, um, just for verses 1 to 15 today, before we pick up uh, the ending uh, next Sunday morning. So Obadiah. Before we get into it, let's pray. Thus says the Lord God. Lord God, what we have before us is your word. It comes from your mouth. And so we ask for your help this morning as we try to listen to your words, help us to understand it, but also help us, Father, to respond to your words in repentance and in faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're new to church or a guest of someone who's just come along for the first time uh, this morning, the idea of looking at a book of the Bible like Obadiah uh, might be quite off-putting. You might just think, look, I'm just not going to know anything about it. Uh, time to tune out. Well, uh, let, me, let me just put your mind at ease, if that's the case. Um, none of us know anything about it either. Uh, it's uh, one of the two of us may have read it before, but we don't really know where to find it in our Bibles even, um, so don't worry about that. I've never preached it before either, this is the first time that I've preached it. So just to reassure you that if you think this is a challenge, that's okay, we're all in the same, uh, in the same boat. But it is a wonderful little book. It's got a very simple structure and a very clear theme. It's an answer to this question. Will the wicked get away with it? Will the wicked get away with it? This is the question that God's people are asking when this prophecy is given by Obadiah. God's people have been abused by a neighbouring nation, a brother, and they're asking, will the wicked get away with it? Will you, God, let our abusers get away with it? Or will they answer for what they've done? And when we see if that's the question, we see suddenly the relevance of that for us today, don't we? That's still a relevant question. Will the wicked get away with it? Well, let's turn to the answer. And the first point on the back of the service sheet, verse 1, a message of judgment on Edom. Now let's just clear up some of the backgrounds of this prophecy. Simple questions, who, where, when. Verse 1, 
the vision of Obadiah. So who? Obadiah. We don't know anything about him. He's just Obadiah. His name means servant of the Lord. He serves God as a prophet. It's not Obadiah who matters. It's whom he serves who matters. It's the Lord and the Lord's word that matters. Now that word we're told in verse 1 is a vision But it's a bit of a surprise because that's followed up immediately with, thus says the Lord. So this isn't a vision that Obadiah sees. It's a vision that God speaks through him. So that in effect, we might see this vision in our mind's eye. So that's the who. It's from Obadiah, but from the Lord uh, ultimately. Where? Where is it directed It's directed to God's people, it's for them, but it's concerning Edom. I'm not sure how well clued up you are about the minor nations of the ancient uh, Near East. Um, Probably some of you may be, but most of you aren't. Um, I wasn't particularly clear on what Edom is, but as I've looked, Edom is actually quite a big deal in the Bible. We first hear about it in the book of Genesis. So if you remember, Abraham... Uh, He famously has a son called Isaac. And then Isaac has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. But Esau, the other son, he's given a nickname, Edom. Uh, It means the red one. Now, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Edom, they're twin brothers. And from the beginning, from the womb itself... They are battling against each other. The nations that come from their line uh, were neighbours, they were brothers, they existed next door to each other, but they were also historic enemies. These two nations, two brothers from the same womb, existed as neighbours in conflict with each other, and that went on for centuries. Obadiah will speak throughout this vision of God's people, but he won't call them Israel He won't even call them Judah, he'll call them Jacob. And he does that to remind us of this brotherly relationship with Edom. So that's the where. When? When's it written? Well, you'll have seen that it's not got a date on it. But we have got some clues from the text that just help us to get pretty close. In verses 10 to 15 particularly, You'll notice there that there is repeated mention, just by scanning down the column there, of Edom's behaviour on the day. You see it there? The day, the day, the day. The day of calamity and ruin. And that refers to the day of Jerusalem's destruction. In 587 BC, after a long and brutal siege, the Babylonian armies broke through the walls of Jerusalem and sacked the city. They carried off most of its surviving inhabitants into exile. And it was the worst day in the history of God's people. Worst of all, the armies of Babylon looted God's temple before burning everything to the ground. Now the rest of the Bible tells us that all of that occurred as part of God's just judgment on his people because they rejected him, because they rejected his law. It was because of Israel's sin that God brought that event 
about. But that didn't excuse the oppressors. They made their own choices and they acted wickedly uh, on that day. Babylon was the great enemy, but Eden, we shall discover, had a part to play in Jacob's humiliation. We'll come on to their behaviour on that day later on. But just for now, that's the when. This is when this is set. The prophecy was written in the aftermath of those terrible events of 587 BC, perhaps just even within a few years. So that's the who, the where, the when. Who? God's word through Obadiah. The where concerning Edom and the when, just after the sack of Jerusalem. So let's turn then to the content, uh, the what. End of verse 1, second part of verse 1. Obadiah says, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So an envoy has come from one of Edom's enemies, we don't know which one, and it's calling for a coalition of tribes to be formed and they're aiming their forces together at Edom. Forces are gathering on the border, they're ready to invade. Now let's just hear that though these are the machinations of political entities that that don't recognise God, they don't worship God, Obadiah recognises that the hand of the Lord is upon this international development. He has a theology of the sovereignty of God. The nations do not act outside of God's will. In fact, though they don't recognise it, they do the Lord's bidding. They, they're his instruments. In this case, they're the instruments of God's judgment against Edom. And what follows is a declaration of God's purpose and God's reasoning for doing so. And it begins at verse 2 verse to verse 4 by saying this, all your pride will be humbled. It's our second point. All your pride will be humbled. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Edom's capital was a place called Selah, which meant the rock. And it existed on a mountainous plateau, uh, sort of to the south east of the land of Israel. It was, a, it was a rock fortress. It was elevated above their enemies. But the Lord discerns that their physical superiority, from which they look down upon others, is a perfect reflection of their hearts. They proudly declare to themselves, who will bring me down to the ground? We're secure, we're powerful, we're better, we are invincible. None can oppose us, including God. We don't need him, we won't bow the knee to him, we are above him. And this is human pride on full display, that that sense of superiority, that, that I am above others and above God. 
And Edom is not alone in this attitude. Don't we see this attitude in much of humanity, a, a nation that views itself as above other nations, still very much prevalent in our world. In our own nation, in our own culture, we're constantly being told that there is no God, there is no one above us. And if we're really honest, is this attitude not something that, that rises up in our own hearts? Yet pride puts us in a dangerous position. It causes us to make one big mistake. In his book, Mere Christianity, the author C.S. Lewis wrote this. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You see, the pride of your heart has deceived you, says Obadiah. High as they are, they have forgotten that there is something, someone, yet above them. There is the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, and the defender of his people. What does the Lord say? Verse 4, wonderful poetry. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. All your pride will be humbled. Edom is in his sights. Now next we get some more detail on how this will happen. Verse 5 to 9. All you trust in will be lost. Verse 5 to 9. This section dismantles piece by piece all the things that have given Edom its pride, that has made them so arrogant. The Lord will take away all that they trust in for their security, their treasure, their treaties, their wisdom, and their warriors. First, your treasure, verse 5 to 6. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? See, all their ill-gotten gain, all their prosperity at the expense of God's people, it will all be taken away. If thieves came, well, the thieves would just take what they wanted. And if grape gatherers came to the vineyard, well, they'd leave something behind, but not so for Edom. Utter destruction. Verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. When the judgment of God falls on you, all your treasure will be lost. You will be stripped bare, there will be nothing left. Next, your treaties, verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So Edom wasn't a big player on the world scene. To survive, it had to form a kind of web of alliances with more powerful nations. Careful and wise diplomacy was 
a big part of its national defence. But in the day of judgment, in the day of the judgment of God, though you do not realise it, your closest friends will betray you, says the Lord. Edom thought itself so clever to form these alliances, but their cleverness is no protection against the Lord. And, and that idea of wisdom is the next thing to perish, verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Edom was famed for its wisdom. The book of Kings refers to the wisdom of the people of the East. One of Job's counsellors was from Timan, one of the major cities of Eden. It was a source of pride that Eden was a centre of learning. As indeed, cities today with great universities, they often feel that, don't they? People from all over the world come to Edinburgh to study here. Some of you have done that. All the wisdom of the world can be found in the great lecture halls and the libraries, and isn't this city proud of that wisdom? And there is lots of learning to be gained. Yet we read here that worldly wisdom did not help Eden when the day of judgment came. And it will not help us too. Paul writes to the Corinthians, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The wisdom of men cannot save. Then the final nail in the coffin, verse 9, your warriors and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timan, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Here's the final defence, the elite troops, the, the strength of Edom's army. They mount the city walls. Surely they'll offer Edom some hope, but no, they'll off, they won't stand. Each one will be slaughtered. And Edom cannot stand because the Lord is against him in judgment. All you trust in will be lost. Your treasure will be in the hands of others. Your treaties will be betrayed. Your wisdom cannot help you. Your warriors will not survive. From your lofty heights you will be brought down. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. It really is quite terrifying, isn't it? The Lord has set himself against them. And it comes to pass. Edom doesn't survive. As predicted, Edom falls to its former allies. The Babylonians attack in 553 BC. And by the time Malachi writes at the end of the Old Testament, perhaps a century later, he says, Edom is shattered. And today, you will not find an Edomite on earth. See, when Obadiah makes this prophecy, no one would have thought that could happen. You might have said that about Judah. Judah's the one in ruins. But Edom's secure it's flourishing, but such is the certainty of the Lord's word. Now we may have a question. Why? 
Why is God so against them? What did they do to warrant such judgments? And the next part of Obadiah's vision shows us the why, verse 10 to 15. All your wickedness will return upon your head. What's the answer to why? Well, it's verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Here it is. God is not some nasty, vindictive deity dishing out punishment for the hell of it. He's a God of justice. He rightly punishes wrongdoing. And here, what makes God so angry is that what Edom has done, it has done as a brother. See, Babylon, Babylon at least was always an enemy. It was never a friend, but Edom is a brother. It should have stood with Jacob on the day of Babylon's invasion. Or at least it should have offered empathy after its fall. But instead we discover Edom, Jacob's brother, joined in the violence. The next few verses, verse 11 to 14, detail exactly the wicked deeds of Edom. As the armies broke through the city walls, Edom did nothing. Verse 11, they stood aloof. This brother of Jacob watched as Jerusalem burned. But actually, it's even worse than that. Look at the end of verse 11. You were like one of them. You know those um, nature shows, the ones that are sort of set in the African plains? You know, you've got David Attenborough, uh, the Serengeti, all that, all that stuff. Uh, you, can, you can exchange the kind of place from place to place because they're all basically the same, what happens. Uh, the camera kind of follows a predator around as it hunts for food. What happens is a lion, uh, it tracks a herd of zebra, and it looks for a vulnerable one. It looks for either a little one or one with a kind of gimpy leg or something like that, so that it can isolate it from the rest. And then dramatic music, it chases it down, it leaps on its back and tears out its throat. The lion eats its fill, and then it slinks off to sleep with a full belly. And then what happens? Then the hyenas come. A pack, they're cackling to each other. They head on over to the kill, and together they rip up what remains. Laughing, mouths covered in blood. Edom is the pack of hyenas to Babylon's lion. What we discover is that after Jerusalem's fall, they laughed and then they looted. They laughed. Look at the verbs of verse 12. Gloating, rejoicing, boasting. They delight in their brother's suffering. Then verse 13, they stopped standing back and they entered the gate and they joined in the looting. Then finally, and worst of all, verse 14, the height of their wickedness. When the refugees, when those few survivors fled towards Edom and pleaded for asylum, 
They stood on the border and they turned them back over to Babylon to be enslaved. This is Edom's wickedness. This is their treatment of their brother on the day of their brother's greatest disaster. And so God's judgment is proportionate. It is just. Verse 15 sums all of this up. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. You plundered, you will be plundered. You joined that alliance that attacked Jacob, the alliance you joined will turn on you. You cut off the refugees, you will be cut off. Because of your behaviour on that day, so this day, the day of the Lord, is coming for you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Now we've come through the verses for this morning. We're coming close to the end of our time together. It's a pretty bleak message so far, isn't it? A vision of judgment. Now we will see the light of hope come, but we'll see it next week. We reach the final part of the prophecy. But I wanted just to spend a few minutes applying what we've seen to, to us today. There's three things I think that we can learn from this, three things to draw our attention to. First of all, that God is sovereign over the nations. This is what Obadiah teaches us. God is sovereign over all the nations. He rules the world. The movement of nations, their rising and falling, is all under his control. He can exalt and he can bring down. And this is a comfort to us, I think, especially as we look out on the world and it seems to be out of control. God ordains the future. He speaks, and decades, even centuries later, it comes to be. It is certain that his will comes to pass. God is sovereign over the nations. That's the first thing. Second, and this I think is the main thing that we're taught. God is the perfect judge of all. He is just. He knows all things. He sees all things. Nothing escapes his attention. And here's the real comfort. The wicked do not get away with anything. At the beginning, I told you that when Obadiah wrote, God's people were asking the question, will the wicked get away with it? They were in ruins. They'd been abused. They'd been plundered and murdered. And all that by their brother, And while they suffered, it seemed that their abuser profited. He was arrogantly flaunting his prosperity in their face. It seemed that Edom was secure with powerful friends, living in plundered wealth, acclaimed for their wisdom, mighty in strength. Will the wicked get away with it? What's the answer? Not one bit. 
Every wicked deed will be brought to account. The Lord saw all of it, and he will not let it pass. He will judge justly. Their wicked deeds shall return upon their own heads. And that is a tremendous comfort. It's comfort to the persecuted church today, isn't it? Every wicked deed will be called to account. And it's comfort indeed to the church in the West. The church in the West seems to be being brought low under God's discipline. Discipline for its disobedience, as Jacob once was. And the secular world will rejoice and will gloat over that. But here's the comfort of Obadiah. Those who delight in the downfall of God's people will answer for that in the end. And then perhaps more personally, this message is a wonderful comfort for anyone who has suffered at the hands of others. Many of us here today will have suffered at the hands of wicked people. Know this, no one gets away with anything in the end. There is divine justice where every sin is paid for, every single one. We can trust God that he will deal justly with it, all of it. And then finally, third thing. There's one part of verse 15 that we haven't yet talked about. Just have a look back down at the page there. First phrase. All of 1 to 14 and 15 has been about Edom and the judgment that was coming upon Edom. But then Obadiah declares, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. You notice that? See, the vision, it suddenly expanded, didn't it? And this will be picked up more next week in the final section, but, but here's what this means. It means that what happens to Edom will happen to all of us. The refrain of judgment is not just for Edom, but it's for you and for me. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. You may build a nest in the stars, but it is not out of his reach. The perfect justice of God that every sin is answered for means that he must deal with me and with you. And when that day of judgment comes, the day of the Lord, all that happens to Edom happens to every man and woman. All our pride will be humbled, will be brought low. All we've trusted in will be lost. Our wealth won't buy us favourable treatment. Our friends can't save us. Our wisdom will be shown to be foolish. And our strength will count for nothing. All our wickedness, every sinful deed, every harsh word, every selfish thought in our hearts will return upon our own heads and we will be cut off forever. When we ask the question, 
Will the wicked get away with it? The Bible's answer is to hold up a mirror. And so what we desperately need is a saviour. We need someone to save us from the just judgment of God. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. 500 years after this prophecy, God sent his son Jesus to be born as a man. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He was always humble, never proud. And he had no wicked deeds credited to his account. And so when he died, what he did was this. He took the wickedness of his people, our sin, upon himself, and he paid the price for it. Our wicked deeds returned upon his head instead of our own. God's justice was satisfied because sin was paid for by Jesus instead of us. He stood in our place and lost everything so that we could be spared the judgment and so we could receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. All we need to do is to receive that gift by faith. And we read a verse earlier on from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus told us to repent and believe the Gospel. The Obadiah is a vision of judgment. It's a message of judgment on Edom, but Edom is representative of all the nations of the earth. The only way we can be spared is to repent of our wickedness, to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and receive the forgiveness and salvation that he offers us. Have you done that? Let's pray. Lord God, as we read passages like this one from Obadiah, we come with trembling and fear, knowing that you are righteous and holy God. We know that our deeds do deserve your judgment. And so we come repenting of our sin and asking for your forgiveness. And we look to the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place for our sins. And we are so thankful for all that he has done for us. Thank you that in him we have forgiveness, that on the day of judgment we will be spared, that our deeds will not return to our own heads because they've already fallen on Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus. That means we can be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.